looking there at verse 42, they continued steadfastly in breaking of bread. Revival is God's presence and power coming to his people in extraordinary ways. Revival is Jesus Christ baptizing his church with a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The marks of revival include an awesome awareness of God overwhelming ravishings of his love, an awakening to the majesty of God, mass conversions of the lost, and a transformed society. The means of revival are the ordinary means of grace in extraordinary power. And what are the ordinary means of grace? The word, sacrament, and prayer. And so what does God use to revive the church? The preaching of the word, the sacraments, and prayer. Now, last time we looked at preaching in the Holy Spirit as a means of revival. And this evening, we come to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in revival. Now, for some of you, that is a very strange thing to say. Some of you may have only known revival because of modern understandings of the subject. And in modern understandings of the subject, the Lord's Supper is nowhere to be seen. But if you know the historical understanding of revival, you know very much often that the Lord used the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to revive his church. And this evening, we want to have a general overview of the subject. It's by no means exhaustive. And if you look in your bulletin insert, I have given you some recommended resources if you want to study this subject further. And we will ask three questions. Where is the link between the Lord's Supper and revival? How is revival, uh, how is the Lord's Supper used in revival? What can we learn from the Lord's Supper and revival today? So first of all, where is the link between the Lord's Supper and revival. Well, I put it to you, there is a biblical, theological, and historical link between the Lord's Supper and revival. First of all then, the biblical link. And it's always consistent to look at the flow of redemptive history. 
to look at the Old Testament and then the New Testament. If we were looking at ruling elders, as we looked at last Thursday, where did we see the origins of the ruling elder? You go back to the Old Testament to see some of the parallels, and then the fullness of the New Testament ruling elder is revealed in the New Testament scriptures. And you do this with a variety of subjects. And so what is the Old Testament parallel for the Lord's Supper? Children, you should know the answer to this question. When Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, what what was he and his disciples celebrating? And you know the answer, children. It was the Passover. That when you read the Gospel accounts in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, Christ and his disciples are partaking of the Old Testament sacramental meal, the Passover. And what did that represent? Well, you remember Exodus 12. It's remembering the Lord's covenant promises, the redemption from the bondage of Egypt, as they're bought by the blood of the Lamb. And Christ comes and takes certain uh, things at the Lord's Passover and institutes the New Testament covenant meal. He takes the bread, he takes the wine, and he institutes with his words, this is my body broken for you, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you, and here is the Lord's Supper. And when you look at revival in the Old Testament, what do you often see present? Not always, often. You see, when God is coming to return to the church again after a season of declension, the Lord uses the Passover to show the power is back in the people. If you go to the revival of King Josiah in 2 Kings chapter 23-22, Season of declension, season of idolatry. God comes again. The people were listening to the word of God. They're hearing the preaching of the word. They're tearing down idols. They're tearing down the groves. And then what happens? There's a great celebration of Passover. Second Kings 23, 22. Surely there was not holding such a Passover from the days of the judges that judged Israel and the kings that ruled Israel. Then you come to the revival of Hezekiah again. A season of declension, idolatry. God's power and presence has been withdrawn from the corporate people and then God returns in power. And what's the sign of God's return? An amazing Passover. Second Chronicles 30 verse 1. And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel. Now we look at the revival of Ezra. The people have put down their tools. They're more interested in their own homes rather than the house of God. 
God sends Haggai and uh, uh, Zechariah as the preachers to proclaim. And it says in Haggai chapter 1 that the Lord stirred the spirits of the people. Revival. And they get back to building the house of God. And what's the sign that God is present? God is returned. Passover. Israel chapter 6 verse 19. And the children of the captivity kept the Passover upon the 14th day of the first month. See what's happening? Not every time. But often when God returns in power, the Passover is there. Now we come to the New Testament. And as we have said previously, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, is the the prototype of revival. The apostolic sign gifts have ceased, but the substance continues till our Lord returns. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, the Holy Spirit is poured out because Jesus Christ baptizes his church and fills them with the presence and power of God. Verse 2, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And with life, They go out to the people and Peter preaches the gospel. And then 3,000 come to Christ that day. And then in verse 42, what does a spirit-filled church look like? Well, there's zeal and fervency for God as they continue steadfastly. There's the primary means of grace and the preaching the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine. There is the evidence of love between brother and sister in the fellowship. There is humble dependence on God, seeking his face in the prayers. And what else is present in a spirit-filled church? The breaking of bread. Now, there is a debate whether this is just simply speaking of eating meals or the Lord's Supper. And it's not a simple thing. It's it's actually a bit more complex than people think. But I do think here, as it mentions prayer and the Apostles' Doctrine and fellowship, in this context, it is speaking of the Lord's Supper. When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, how does the Apostle Paul describe the Lord's Supper? The bread which we break, the breaking of bread. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we all are partakers of that one bread. And so, yes, in other places, I do actually think it's speaking of food. But I think here it is speaking of the Lord's Supper. And so as this is the prototype of revival with the Holy Spirit being poured out and the ordinary means of grace come of life, we have preaching, prayer, 
fellowship and the Lord's Supper. And so when God in the New Covenant era, in the church age, when Christ freely pours out his Spirit and revives a church, he may very use the means of, or as a sign, the Lord's Supper. Secondly, the theological link. And there are actually many theological links. You could think of signing seal of the covenant of grace. That revival was God just simply coming in his covenant of grace, fulfilling his promises in extraordinary power. And if he's going to give confirmation and assurance to the people of God, will he not do it through the sign and seal of the covenant? The Lord's Passover, that sacramental meal, that covenantal meal, and then the new covenant, the Lord's Supper. But I want to focus on the Holy Spirit. What makes the means of grace a means of grace? What makes the means of grace a blessing, a strengthening, a converting thing for you? It's not the thing itself. As John Owen famously and provocatively said, without the Holy Spirit, we might as well just burn our Bibles. That's what he says in volume two. If we are to pray and this Holy Spirit is absent, God will not hear. And if we have bread and wine and we simply mentally remember the Lord's death, there'll be no blessing or strengthening of faith for anyone. The Holy Spirit is essential for the preaching of the word. The Holy Spirit is essential for praying to God. And the Holy Spirit is essential for the Lord's Supper. How can we be blessed and strengthened from a Christ who is distant from us in heaven? The Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, it says that the cup and the bread are communion with the body and blood in Christ in heaven. How can we have communion on earth with the risen, ascended Lord? The Holy Spirit. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 says, if by the communion or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and the communion or fellowship of the Holy Spirit. John Calvin, the bond of that connection is the Spirit of Christ who unites us to him and is a kind of channel by which everything that Christ has and is, is derived to us. For if we see that the sun in sending forth its rays upon the earth to generate, cherish and invigorate its offspring in a manner transfuses its substance into it, why should the radiance of the Spirit be less in conveying to us the communion of his flesh and blood? Wherefore the scripture, when it speaks of our participation with Christ, refers its whole efficacy to the Spirit. And as we know, there's degrees. Is every sermon the same efficacious? No. Some sermons are more efficacious than another, whether it's conversions 
or particularly strengthening the faith of the saints? Is every single Lord's Supper the exact same blessing, strengthening, confirming of faith? No. We all know by experience. But in revival, the Holy Spirit comes in extraordinary power to make the Lord's Supper a means of grace in an awesome manner. The faith is more tangible of the presence of Christ than your neighbor. The love filled your soul in an overwhelming way. And you're assured of your interest in Christ to a high, high degree. Thirdly, the historical link. Now, we're not saying every single revival always has an extraordinary power of the Holy Spirit in the Lord's Supper. That's why I keep using the word often. Because you'll notice some revivals, for some reason, God seems to absolutely abundantly bless the preaching than the prayer in the Lord's Supper. Might be a bit different. Or you look at other revivals, like the 1857 revival in New York, was it 959 in New York? It's much more about prayer. And so God's sovereignty. There are other revivals, especially joined unto the administration of the Lord's Supper. In Scotland, many, many revivals came at the administration of the Lord's Supper. The Theological and Historical Dictionary of Scotland says, The earliest recorded revivals in Scotland were usually associated with the celebration of the Lord's Supper, attracting participants from far and near. It created a sense of spiritual expectancy, especially when notable ministers presided. The communions drew vast audiences and spread the impulses of revival farther afield. 1630, revival, communion in Kirkershots. The 1742 revival in Cambus Lang, the Lord's Supper. William Charles Burns, revival in 1839, began at the Lord's Supper in Kilsyth. And it's not restricted to Scotland. If you read the revivals of the 1700s in Wales, what do you see especially during the administration of the Lord's Supper under Daniel Rowland? Revival. And then you go to New England, to the Puritans. Where did they often experience revival? at the administration of the Lord's Supper. You go now down to Pennsylvania, New Jersey, under men such as Samuel Blair and Gilbert Tennant, when did the sparks of revival set aflame their parishes? The administration of the Lord's Supper. 
You read of the revivals in the 1800s in the southern states, Kentucky, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, and often it was Presbyterian administrations of the Lord's Supper. And so here we have a biblical, theological, and historical link between God reviving his church and the administration of the Lord's Supper. Secondly, how is the Lord's Supper used in revival? And we have five ways in which God uses the Lord's Supper to revive. And the first is preaching at the Lord's Supper. When you look at the Bible, whether it's the Old Testament parallel or the New Testament, you always see teaching and preaching as present. For example, in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, as they're preparing for the Passover, what do you see in verses 5 to 9? There's a letter. The postmen or the runners are to go around all the land and they are to proclaim the word given to them. So they established a decree to make proclamation throughout all the land. In verse 6, so the posts or the runners, they went out and they said, they proclaimed, they preached. And when you see also in verse 22, what is the work of the Levites? And Hezekiah spake comfortably unto all the Levites that taught the good knowledge of the Lord. And this we know through historical documents that in the time of the Passover, uh, the Levites in all the villages and towns, before they'd come to Jerusalem for the Passover, in their synagogues, in their gatherings, they would preach and teach to the people. And in Acts chapter 2, what do we see there with the breaking of bread? The apostles' teaching or doctrine. Or in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, when they're gathering for worship and they have the breaking of bread, what is also present? Paul is teaching. And so it is inseparable at the administration of the Lord's Supper, there is to be preaching. This is an essential, biblical, and reformed doctrine. There is no sacrament without the Word of God. Baptism is only water, and the Lord's Supper is only bread and wine until... The word is given. And we're not, not only speaking of the words of institution. The preaching of the word is essential for the administration of the Lord's Supper. John Calvin and his institutes. There cannot be a right administration of the supper without the word. 
any utility, that's any blessing, any grace, which we derive from the sufferer requires the word, whether we are to be confirmed in faith, exercised in confession, or aroused to duty, there is need, necessity, of preaching. Nothing, therefore, can be more preposterous than to convert the supper into a dumb action. If you don't have the preaching of the word, then you turn the Lord's supper into a dumb action. And when you preach the word at the time of the administration of the Lord's supper, you are to preach what the Lord's supper is about. What is the Lord's Supper about, friends? Sin and salvation, grace and love of God, Christ and Him crucified, my body broken for you, personal work. The blood of the new covenant shed for you, atonement. If you're not preaching on what the Lord's Supper is about, you very much me making it a dumb action. And sadly, the Reformed Church today, much of the Reformed Church today, is tempting this. They'll preach on prayer, fasting, parenting, marriage and divorce, and then they'll have the Lord's Supper. Or even worse, or equally as worse, they'll have the Lord's Supper before the preaching. We must teach and preach what the Lord's Supper is about for it to be a live, living word. And the Lord in church history has used this practical doctrine to revive his church. Because at the administration of the Lord's Supper, Men came preaching sin and salvation, grace and love of God, Christ and Him crucified. They preached it experimentally. They preached it to the conscience. They preached it evangelistically. They preached it in the unction of the Holy Ghost. Read the communion sermons. Samuel Rutherford, Thomas Boston, G.A. Alexander, Robert Murray McShane. Lee Schmidt, an expert on this. In his book he says, From 1622 into the 1630s, one portion of the southwest or another of Scotland was aflame with revival. The communion occasions were an important part of the awakening. David Dixon's sacraments at Irvine, for example, were regularly thronged. Robert Woodrow writes, People under exercise and soul concern came from every place and attended upon his sermons at his communions, which were indeed times of refreshing from the Lord. And in Scotland, during the 1800s, John MacDonald of Ferentosh 
He would go and preach Christ during the sacramental occasions. The Holy Spirit came and revival awakened the people of God. One man speaks of his experience under the revivals under John MacDonald's preaching. He says, Mr. MacDonald himself seemed to be in raptures. There were several people who cried aloud, but the general impression seemed to be a universal melting under the word. The people of God themselves were as deeply affected as others. And so when the apostles' doctrine explaining the Lord's Supper is proclaimed, God comes and revives his church at the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Secondly, preparing for the Lord's Supper. And again, you can go to the Old Testament or the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the people of God had to prepare for the Passover. They had to sanctify themselves. They had to seek the Lord. They had to get rid of any leaven that was in the home. And when you look at the revivals and the Josiah and Hezekiah, what do you see? A sanctification of the heart, a preparing of the people. Where it says again and again and again that they sanctified themselves. They tore down idols. For example, in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 14. And they arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, and all the altars for incense took they away, and they cast into the brook Kidron. And that was because in verse 19, it says the people who came from the northern tribes, they were not cleansed. They were not sanctified in the eyes of the Lord, but Hezekiah prayed for them and the Lord accepted them. Why? The good Lord pardon everyone that prepareth his heart to seek God. And so if they were unprepared and they were not actively seeking the Lord, God would not accept their partaking of the Passover. And when you read 1 Corinthians 11, we see the parallel, do we not? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven: Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink that cup. And how is someone to examine themselves and prepare themselves? Well, we did an exposition of this in November, so we'll refer to that. But I'll just read the conclusion of it from the larger Catechism 171. Before they come to prepare themselves thereunto, by examining themselves of their being in Christ, of their sins and wants, of the truth and measure of their knowledge, faith, repentance, love to God and the brethren, charity to all men, forgiving those who have done them wrong and of their desires after Christ. 
And so the people of God in the Apostles' Day and beyond, they would prepare themselves by seeking Christ, exercising faith, humbling themselves in repentance, understanding what the Lord's Supper is about, and coming with faith on Christ. And how are people to examine themselves? Privately in meditation and fervent prayers? Yes. But also under the preaching of God's word. Who is it that permits or does not permit people to partake? Elders. Because elders have been given the keys of the kingdom. And the keys of the kingdom, says John at the end of his gospel, is to bind and loose. And what is the primary exercise of the keys of the kingdom? The preaching of the word. And therefore, just as we don't let individualism, you choose your own, come to the front and partake if you want, elders using the keys of the kingdom are to uh, protect the Lord's table. And we do that many ways, but including the preaching of the word. Now, how do you do that? There is no set way. There is no one way. It's up to the liberty of the church. Some people do it the week before. Some people do it on a Wednesday night. And those in the Presbyterian tradition, we do it Thursday to Monday, at least historically. And as the people of God are preparing themselves, seeking Christ, exercising renewed faith, humbling themselves in repentance, God uses it for revival. Because is that not what God does? You remember from Judges 2, you remember from 1 Samuel chapter 7, when the people of God are broken, we have sinned, and they're seeking the Lord. It's a bohemian of tears, humbling themselves in sin. Or, or Samuel comes and says, turn your hearts to the Lord and he'll turn unto you. And they do it and God comes in power. In Joel chapter 2, it says, rend your hearts, not your garments. And as in the history of the church, as the people of God prepared for the Lord's Supper and were not coming unworthily and unprepared, he poured out his Holy Spirit. Fourthly, the blessed, sorry, thirdly, thirdly, the communion with Christ at the Lord's Supper. I've already quoted 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Yes, it is. And the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Yes, it is. The communion is the sharing and the participation of Christ to his people. And the experience of that is by degrees. Sometimes you come to the table and the word and sign come to you and you partake by faith and there's a simply objective grasping that Christ died for me and all my sins are forgiven. You don't feel much. 
in your mind, your faith is confirmed. That's the blessing and that's the communion. But there are other times when the Holy Spirit comes more and your faith is so aware of what Christ has done for you, the religious affections of love and joy are filling your soul. And in revival, God has used the partaking of the Lord's Supper to have extraordinary efficacy so that those who partake are filled with the fullness of God. For example, at a communion in Ross Keene, they express what happened. There was a plentiful effusion of the Spirit upon a great many present. And the oldest Christians there declared that they had not been witnessed to the like. In short, they were so sensible and glorious discoveries made of the Son of Man and such evident presence of the Master of Assemblies this day and the proceeding that the people seemed to be transported and their souls filled with heaven. Oh, how Harris. In the 1720s, he came to a sacramental occasion under the ministry of Daniel Rowland. And after the preaching of the word, there is the Lord's Supper. And there was a reviving of the people of God. And the love of God was shed abroad by the Holy Spirit into Howe Harris's heart. Love This is how Harris explaining his experience. Love fell in showers on my soul so that I could scarcely contain myself. I had no fear or any doubt of my salvation. I felt I was all love, so full of it that I could not ask for more. Fourthly, the blessing that comes to the Lord's Supper. The blessing that comes is that your faith is strengthened, your doubts are gone, assurance is given to you, and all the promises of Christ are confirmed. And sometimes some saints struggle at the Lord's table. Their flesh, the devil is at them, And it's a real battle. I know there are people in this room who have this experience of the Lord's Supper. That's why we should pray for more and more of the Holy Spirit to bless the sacrament to the souls of the tender of conscience. But when the Holy Spirit comes in revival, he gives great strength and assurance to the people of God. George Wood, writing in 1743, Since the communion here in last July, the bulk of the congregation seemed to have a desire after instruction and a knowledge of the gospel much greater than before. They have even more hunger from the word of God because the Spirit truly made the cup of blessing which we bless a blessing to their soul. 
And then Gilbert Tennant, writing in 1744 in America, many people in his congregation were struggling with assurance of faith. And at the administration of the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit was poured out, revived his church, and doubting saints found assurance. He says, The sacramental season was blessed to the refreshing of the Lord's dear people, so that some who had much been distressed with doubts about their states received soul-satisfying sealings of God's everlasting love. Others were supported and quickened so that they returned home rejoicing and glorifying God. Now this can happen at any Lord's Supper. But in revival, it comes in the extraordinary manner. And fifthly and lastly, conversions at the administration of the Lord's Supper. And by this, we do not mean that unconverted people come to the Lord's Supper, partake of it, and are then converted. We do not mean that. The Lord's Supper is a confirming ordinance, not a converting ordinance. But they come during the preparation, and they come during the sermon at the Lord's Supper, and they come afterwards in the thanksgiving sermons. And as the, 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 the meat, so to speak, the message of the Lord's Supper is proclaimed in all of its fullness, this is a means for the converting of souls. George Weems writes in 1703 of his own experience of communions. Communions in Scotland, the great master of assemblies is pleased so far to countenance them with his presence and power that many hundreds, yea, thousands in this land have dated their conversion from these occasions. And we all know the stories. 1630, 500 were converted in one day as John Livingston preached a sermon during the communion season. You maybe have heard of 1742 when George Whitfield was invited to preach at the communion season in Camber Slang. And multitudes were soundly converted, became church members and were sound in the faith till the day they died. What can we learn from the Lord's Supper and Revival? I think not only do we need revival, we need reformation. We need to return back to a biblical, historical view of the Lord's Supper. We need to remember that it is inseparable preaching of the word concerning the the, the message of the Lord's Supper and the administration of the Lord's Supper. It is always good to teach the people of God how to live the godly Christian life and in the kingdom of God. But when the Lord's Supper is being administered, preach on what the Lord's Supper is about. Preach on the love of God. Preach on the grace of Christ. Preach on the person of Christ. Preach on the atonement of Christ. Second Reformation, 
We need to prepare. We need preparation. We need to encourage and teach the people of God to prepare privately what is needful before coming to the Lord's Supper. Let a man examine himself. Let him come worthily. Let him discern the Lord's body. Let him come of their need of Christ, desiring Christ, humbled in their sins, their their faith alive at the glory and the beauty of the Saviour. And we need to get rid of the individualism that does not have the keys of the kingdom doing this. There needs to be the preparation. We are not saying the only way to prepare is the Presbyterian communion season. We're not. I may argue it's the most best, the best, because it's the most spiritual, logical of all the things. But it's my no means the only way. But the point being, no matter what you do, you're publicly preparing the people so they can be going to the Lord's Supper worthily and not drinking the guilt. And we need reformation in having not merely a theological view of the Lord's Supper, but an experimental view of the Lord's Supper. Oh, we'll write books against Rome, ex opere operato. The thing doesn't work in and of itself. But you listen to many today, it's fide ex opere operato. The faith works in and of itself automatically. As if you're a believer, you're automatically blessed at the Lord's Supper. That is not the case. That's why you need to come prepared. 1 Corinthians 11. You must come your faith discerning the Lord's body. That's why God killed, killed some people who were true believers in 1 Corinthians 11, but they came unworthily. Therefore, we need to reform the church and have an experimental view of the Lord's Supper. Secondly, we learn that we need the Holy Spirit for the Lord's Supper. We have our own communion season, a modified one. The week before, we have the both services preparing us. We have a prayer meeting preparing us. We have a house fellowship on the Friday. We have a service on the Saturday. And then, of course, on the Lord's Day. Are you truly dependent on the Holy Spirit? Are you taking for granted the Holy Spirit? Or are you praying for the Holy Spirit. I hope you are. I believe many of you are. I encourage you to keep on doing it. And I encourage you to take yourself to prayer. Every week for the Spirit's blessing. And in every way. In terms of this context. During the administration of the Lord's Supper. And then third application. Let us pray for God to revive the church during the administration of the Lord's Supper. As we have the Lord's Supper, as we have preaching and preparation and communion, let us pray that God revives the church. If he simply, how we dare such a thing, just raises our holiness, spirituality and godliness to a higher level, that would be absolutely an answer to prayer. But if he so desires and wills that a tiny wee flock 
in Grand Rapids, seeking the glory of the Lord, praying for the Holy Spirit to come, and then our own administration of the Lord's Supper is the spark that sets the flame for the revival of God's church in Grand Rapids. Let us pray.